What chapter is 1 Corinthians 13? What do we learn in 1 Corinthians 13? That's right. It's the love chapter. You have to say it like that when you say, when you talk about 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm going to read it for us together here this morning. It's a very, very familiar passage of scripture, which can be dangerous for us because it's easy for us just to not even think, right? To not engage our brains. So I'm gonna encourage you. I'm gonna ask you to engage your brain now as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul, at the end of verse, or rather at the end of chapter 12 says, I will show you still a more excellent way. That's the lead up to chapter 13. I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, he's talking about giving yourself in sacrifice, maybe even in martyrdom, but I have not love, I, I gain nothing. Love is patient. I actually like the old, I think the King James translates it long suffering. I think that's actually a better way for even us to understand that first description of love. Love is patient. It's kind, does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I have fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. My sermon title this morning is Love is the Greatest. Father, would you please use your word this morning in our midst, in our hearts. Use it to correct and convict and encourage and inspire us. May we be good doers of the word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm afraid I failed to get uh, my notes back to get them on the screen, so there's no, oh, there is. Are you like live entering it in there? Oh man, very good. Let's see how well she keeps up. She doesn't have my notes, so I was surprised to see anything back there on the screen. Where do we hear 
the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 read the most? Weddings. Weddings. We hear it read at weddings. Anybody ever heard a sermon preached on 1 Corinthians 13 outside of a wedding? A few, okay, good, good. We hear it preached at weddings. The apostle Paul would be shocked to know that that's how we're using it. Now, it's not that it doesn't apply. Of course it applies, absolutely applies. But it applies kind of down the line a little ways. Paul is in the middle of rebuking a very selfish, envious, manipulative, proud, arrogant people who are extremely gifted with all sorts of spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 13, he shines a light on the people at Corinth in a way that would have left them feeling very uncomfortable when this letter was first read. And while it does apply at weddings, I think the Apostle Paul would wonder, why did you choose that passage for a wedding? This morning, I want us to walk through 1 Corinthians chapter 13 together. I'm saving my main point to the end this morning. I usually give you the punchline and then tell you the joke. This morning, I'm gonna tell you the joke and then the punchline will be at the end, okay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna save the main point for the end because I want this passage to build. I want the effect of the passage to have the effect in our hearts that it would have had upon its original hearers who the original hearers would not have immediately thought, hey, there's a wedding next weekend. Let's use this chapter of that letter. For those of you who may be getting married in the near future, please feel free to use 1 Corinthians chapter 13. <laughs> no problem, no problem whatsoever using 1 Corinthians 13 in a wedding. It's just not its original context at any, by, uh, by any stretch, okay? Point number one, let's see how Paul describes for the Corinthian believers the priority of love. Verses one through three describe the priority of love. If I, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm noisy gong and clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is laying out for the Corinthian believers this, love is more important than spiritual gifts. Love is more important than spiritual gifts. Why you do what you do is more important than what you do. And Paul, Paul kind of lists out three things. You see in verse one, two, and three, he lists out three um, super gifts or, or uh, you know, superhero spiritual gifts, right? If you have the tongue of men and of angels, and already in chapter 12, he's introduced the idea of speaking in tongues. Chapter 14, he's gonna talk a lot more about prophecy in tongues. And he says, listen, even if you have, even if I have the ability to speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. In verse two, he goes, and if I have power, if I have all, uh, well, now I'm trying to, quote it and can't remember it. Prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge. Paul is describing someone there who has the ability to understand the mysteries of God. And he has the, the prophetic ability to, to speak the word of God into people's lives and to, and to speak a word that's directed to them from God, a, a prophecy and knowledge and all understanding, understanding the mysteries. Paul's describing a very gifted teacher. 
And in verse three, he says, hey, and if you give away all that you have to feed the poor, and he's describing someone who maybe had great riches and chose to live as though they didn't in order to do good to those around them. And even someone who would give their own lives in service to Christ and for the good of others, but they do these things without love. Paul is describing them as someone with no love. Now listen, Paul's not making up um, He's not describing like, even if I had these uh, incredible gifts, Paul is, is talking to a group of people who had them. You understand what I'm saying? Like Paul's saying, listen, you, you have the gifts of the tongue of men and of angels. You have those gifts. Many of you at Corinth, you have the gift of prophecy and understanding mysteries and having all knowledge. You have them. In fact, many of you are giving to the poor and some of you may even choose to give your life uh, in, in service to Christ and, and for the good of others. And even, even though you have those things and Paul is living his own life in this way, he has the, he's experienced the gift of tongues. He's experienced the gift of prophecy. He is giving his life literally and will give his life for the good of others. So Paul is describing both his own life and the life of the, that's being lived by the Corinthians. And he's saying, listen, even if you have all of these things, but you ha don't have love, you have nothing. Gifts are not more important than love. But we often think and act and behave like they are. We, we often look for the most gifted people and they're the ones that we want to put in a position. Or they're the ones that we want to look to for direction. We look to those who have the greatest gifts. Even, even though sometimes those people are jerks. Right? Now I'm thinking outside the church. Right? There's no jerks inside the church. I'm kidding. There's jerks inside the church. We look, but we look for the most gifted people. And the world will ignore their character foibles, as long as they have the capacity, they have the, 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 the gifts. I read years ago, uh, the uh, autobiography, it wasn't autobiography, it was a biography of Steve Jobs, right? Apple computers. And uh, they, as you read through the biography of Steve Jobs, it was obvious that he was a genius and he was a jerk. He was a horrible person to work for. But the world rewarded him with notoriety and riches because he was so good at what he does, at what he did. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not, that's not how it's going to work in my kingdom. Some of you know, know people like this who are very gifted. They're good at what they do. But they're, they're not full of love. Maybe there are some in here who are that way. And God says to the Corinthian believers through the apostle Paul, you can be really gifted, but be nothing. What, what does it mean? What does it mean that they were nothing and they gained nothing? Verse two ends with, I am nothing. Verse three, I gain nothing. What, is, what does that mean? How can you have all of these gifts? And even, even though you don't have love, even with all these gifts, it, it amounts to nothing. I think there's actually a really interesting clue for us in verse one. In verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, 
We might read that and go, I know exactly what that means. If you come into this building banging a gong or clanging cymbals, that's gonna be really annoying. You're just gonna be making a lot of loud racket around here. It's not gonna be helpful to anyone. And, and so uh, if you speak in the tongues of men and angels and don't have love, you're just annoying. Well, that may be true, but that's not what this means. Right? Paul is writing to a specific group of people in a specific time. He's writing to a, a group of believers who have been saved out of a very pagan, wicked, godless culture. They've been saved out of the city of, they still live in the city of Corinth, right? And Corinth would have been, imagine our New York City or a place like that of today. Corinth would have been that kind of place, right? I mean, anything and everything that you can imagine in the ancient world was available for you at Corinth. And Corinth was a place where many, many different gods were worshiped. It was a, it was a very religious place. And many of the, many of the uh, um, ancient worship temples and that sort of thing are still, are still there in, Cor- in Corinth. So, so um, and when those pagans would go and worship their deities, they would go into the temple and they would worship the deity. And then often as they would leave, many of them would band together and they would start a processional. They would kind of fall in line and march behind each other and they would have gongs and cymbals, right? The Corinthians, as soon as Paul talks about gongs and cymbals, they immediately are thinking about what they've seen outside, maybe on the way to have this letter read to them. They may have walked past people who were banging gongs and cymbals. And here's the reason why those who were, worshiping the pagan gods, the reason they would go out and then bang gongs and cymbals is because they were trying to get the attention of the God they had just served. They had done their works of service. They had gone and done their worship thing to God. And then they were saying, hey, look at what I did, God. Are you watching? I really want your favor. I want your love. I want you to return to me with love because of the thing that I have done for you. You understand that in the context of what the Corinthians were doing? Right? They go offer a sacrifice. They go take part in some kind of pagan ritual in the temple. And then as they leave, they want to make sure that God noticed them so that God will then love them. And Paul is saying this. I didn't realize this until I started studying. I have uh, Pastor Tim Keller to thank for helping me understand this a little more clearly. Paul is saying this. Brothers and sisters, if you, if you exercise your gifts and do good, and even, even when it may benefit and be for the good of others. But if you, if, you, if you exercise your gifts, if you use all these wonderful gifts that you have here in the, Corinth, in, the, in the Corinthian church, if you use those gifts, but you don't actually have a heart that's been changed by God to love others, here's what you're doing. You're using your gift to bless or serve others. And you're saying, God, are you, are you watching me? I want some favor from you now. Let me bang my gong. Let me clang my cymbals a little bit, God, because I want to make sure that you actually like me. See what I'm doing? I'm doing good stuff for you, right? Like, do you like me now? And sometimes it's done even so that other people would see and think, oh, wow, you're such a good person. But Paul is saying when you, when you use your gifts and it's not actually out of a heart of love, it's because it's out of a heart wanting love. I want to get the approval and the favor of God by the good works that I'm doing. And Paul is saying, no, no, love is, is, doesn't work that way. You need a heart that's supernaturally changed by God in order to truly and genuinely love other people. Your exercise of your gifts are not the ultimate thing. 
the exercise of your gifts out of a heart of love is the ultimate thing. Now, can God still use your gifts to bless others even if your heart is not in the right place? Of, of course he can, of course he can. God is, God is big enough and strong enough to do that. Gongs and cymbals. Paul says, if you serve Christ and others without love, you're doing it like the pagans. You're doing it to get the attention of God and others. And ultimately your religion isn't about God and others, it's about you. You're doing it so that God will love you. So verses one through three, Paul is saying, look, love is the priority, not gifts. Point number two, we see a portrait of love. Verses four through seven give us a portrait of love. What's a portrait? A portrait is where someone looks at a person and then paints their their figure in a way that resembles them. And you know, portraits are often very, very beautiful. And here we're seeing a, a portrait painted of love in verses four through seven. Paul begins to describe love and, and portray love. And the portrait to us is beautiful. And verses four through seven are why we read 1 Corinthians uh, 13 at weddings. But notice, notice how love is actually portrayed. How, how is love portrayed through a Hollywood movie? Often. O often it's portrayed through very romantic feelings as the center and the primary definition of love, right? The girl walks into the diner. The guy looks up from his table. The music changes. The lighting changes, right? There's a lingering look between the two of them. The only open seat is at his table. He invites her to come, right? And they sit and they're falling in love and you know it, like, right? It's, you're like, this is love. Obviously, this is what love is like, right? And so single guys go to diners and sit in empty booths and wait for girls to come by. This is how it's going to work. But this is not how love is described for us at all in the scripture. Love is patient. Well, I'll, already I don't like it. Already I don't like, I don't like this description of love. Already. First word, love is patient. And I'm like, ah, I don't like that part of it. No one likes being patient, right? Patience always expresses I'm waiting longer than I want to. I'm still waiting from Kuyu to get the thing to replace the thing. The Seabirds gave me a very nice gift for Christmas and it wasn't quite the right size. So I sent it back and I've been waiting forever to get it back and I'm, I'm angry. I'm not patient. Love is patient and kind. Patient is kind of like passively waiting, right? Like, okay, I've got to be patient while I'm waiting on something. Kind is active. Kind is me moving towards someone in love. If you're a Bible writer, just write the word passive next to patient and active next to kind. And then when you read it next time, you'll be like, oh yeah, I remember that. Love does not envy or boast, right? Somebody gets a new truck and you think, I want a new truck. It doesn't boast about how good they are. It's not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. You will do this for me the way that I demand it of you, right? Someone who insists on their own way, they're easily offendable, they're manipulative, they're like, it's just this person who's hard to be around. They insist on their own way. It's not irritable or resentful. All of that is kind of together. 
It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And notice there's not a single emotional description of love in here. It is all active doing. Here's what love does. Here's what love is. These aren't warm, fuzzy feelings, rather they're actions. Love is a roll up your sleeves and get to work kind of thing. But but remember remember the context of this chapter and, and remember the context of this book that I've already alluded to earlier. This part of the letter is not disconnected from the earlier from the earlier chapters. Look look what Paul is doing. When Paul says love is patient, kind, doesn't envy or boast, he's writing to people who he's already rebuked for being impatient and unkind and envious and boastful and arrogant and ru- Paul has already addressed these topics, these issues, these lack of lovelinesses in their lives already as he's now saying, here's what love is. Imagine whoever the pastor at the Corinthian church was when he received the letter to the church at Corinth and he's reading as as the leader would have read these verses to the church at Corinth. I think their very first impulse might've been to think, oh man, like he's, Paul is, is not pulling any punches. He's making it very clear. He's rebuked us for our lack of love. And he's saying, this is what love is. These were patient, excuse me, these were impatient, unkind, jealous, bragging, prideful, mean, manipulative, offendable, bitter people who were happy to sin and ignore the truth. Just like you and me. Just like you and me, they were incredibly gifted, just like this church, and yet their works were gong banging. Their works were gong banging. What they were doing was more about getting favor from God than actually living out of the love that Christ had extended to them. They were, they were selfish people just like us. We read this passage and we might be inclined to put our name in the place of the word love. Maybe you've heard someone encourage you to do that before. Look at verses four through seven. Put your, take out the word love and put your name there, right? Jeremy is patient and kind. Jeremy does not envy or boast. Jeremy is not arrogant or rude, right? And I think the purpose of that is to kind of help you realize I need to grow in these areas. I need to change in these areas. I need to, listen, if you put your name there, all it can do is absolutely condemn you. That's all it can do is absolutely condemn you. There's no sense in which it's encouraging to say, Jeremy is, lo- is patient and kind. Jeremy does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. That's a discouraging thing to do. In verses four through seven, Paul is saying this, love is not like you. That's a pretty kind of confrontational thing for him to say. He's, he looks at the, well, he writes. He writes to the people at Corinth and he says, love is not like you. Here's what love is like and it's not like you. Love is not like you. Brothers and sisters, love is not like us. And we wanna take a statement like this and a list like this and say, well, I'm just gonna, Man, that's good, Jeremy. That's true. Whew, I am not loving like that. I'm just gonna work harder. I'm gonna work harder at being loving. I'm gonna work harder. I'm gonna be better at being loving. 
But here's the problem. You, you know, you're old enough now, you've lived long enough to know that you aren't very good at getting better at being loving. You're just not very good at it. We're not very good at it. I heard an illustration this way uh, this week. It, it's, we need, we need our hearts to be changed, not just conformed. We need our hearts to be changed. If you take a rubber ball and you smash it down, it'll, it'll change shape to the pressure that it's being put under. But as soon as the pressure's off, it's gonna go back to its original shape. A lot of times we can, we can kind of, uh, we can bring about social pressure that keeps us behaving in a certain way, but the rubber ball of our heart has not been changed. As soon as that social pressure is off, we're gonna go right back to living the way that we wanna live. What you and I need is a supernaturally changed by God heart and affections. So these verses, I don't believe these verses were given primarily to encourage the Corinthians to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and love better. I don't think these verses were given to the Corinthians so that they would have a great passage for their weddings Look again at the description in verses four through seven. I hope that for everyone in here this morning, some of you may already know this. You might already be like, Jeremy, I know exactly where you're going and I can't wait for you to get there. This is so exciting. I love this about this passage. I hope that many of you will have an experience with this passage this morning, similar to what I had as I studied it this week. An aha, an aha moment here. Look again at the description. Paul is declaring what true love is. Love is patient and kind. Love is, and he's not describing love in some kind of abstract theoretical way. He's describing love and he's using personification. You know what that word means? Personifications, where you ascribe human character traits to a non-human thing. It's like Paul has someone in mind when he's describing love. Paul does have someone in mind when he's describing love. Do you remember in 1 John, the Bible says, God is love. Point number three, let's see the person of love. The person of love. Don't put your name in verse four, put Jesus's name in verse four. Jesus Christ is patient and kind. Jesus Christ does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He doesn't insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Verse seven makes sense to me now. Verse seven never really made sense to me. Verse seven makes sense to me when you put Jesus's name there. Jesus bears all things. Think of all that you've done against him. Think of all that your life has brought onto his shoulders on the cross. Jesus Christ bears all things. Jesus Christ believes all all things. He believes the word of God. He believes that the future is, uh, is his people in eternity in heaven. He believes that the good work that he has begun in you will be performed. Jesus Christ believes all things. Jesus Christ hopes all things. Jesus Christ endures 
all things. There's not a human on planet earth who's ever come close to getting this list checked off. Not even close. The most loving person that you can imagine has fallen so far short. Jesus is all of these things. And he wants the Corinthians, these selfish, envious, rude, manipulative, easily offended Corinthians to know that there is an objective, real love outside them. He's not just saying, come on, get it together, Corinthians. He's saying, love is this. You are very unloving, but love is this. Love is first of all, a person. Love is not first of all, something that you and I do. Love is first and foremost, a person. Jesus Christ. Love is first and foremost, the person, Jesus Christ. Picture Jesus Christ on the cross, nails in his arms, giving his life for humanity as you think through verses four through seven, his being patient and kind, not arrogant or rude, not insisting on his own way, He's not irritable or resentful. And then verse seven explodes with meaning as you picture, picture him, picture Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. And now remember, Jesus Christ bears all things. Of course, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Now read the first three words of verse eight with that picture in your mind. Love never fails. Human love fails all the time. The best human love fails regularly. Well, not my parents. Yes, yes, your parents will fail you. I'm a parent, I know. And they'll eventually die. Your spouse, nope. If you you seek this kind of love from your parents or from your spouse or from your children, you will crush them. If you expect this kind of of love, verses four through seven, if you expect your parents or your friends or your spouse or your children to love you this way, you will be horribly disappointed and, and they will feel, they'll be aware, I can't, I can't love you that like that. There's only one person who can love you like this. And he did. And he did. Christ does love you like this. And I think verses 8 through 13, we always look at verses 8 through 13, and we think of them primarily as some kind of confusing passage about when tongues and prophecy and all that kind of stuff will cease. And I do think that there's some, some, some of that content in there, but I don't think that's even, I don't think Paul has like suddenly left the concept of love and is gonna talk about the ceasing of the gifts for a second before he ends the verse, in, uh, the, ends the passage with verse 13. I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I think verses eight through 13 are actually more about how wonderful it is that the perfect one described in verses four through seven is going to come and we're gonna see him face to face. And and when we do see him face to face, these gifts that you've made as more important than love, those things that you right now think are more important than love, tongues of men and of angels, prophecy, mysteries, understanding, giving your body to be burned, those things are, are they're, they're, they're even gonna go away. They're not even gonna be around when love lasts forever. Paul's not just detaching for a second to talk about spiritual gifts. He's saying, look in verse um, eight, 
love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. Tongues, they'll cease. Knowledge, it'll pass away. Right now we know partially and we prophesy partially, but when the perfect comes, and I believe for many reasons, that's referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. When the perfect comes, this one who has been described in verses four through seven, when he comes, these partial things that right now you think are everything, they're gonna pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Is it okay for a child to speak like a child? Absolutely, right? He's not, he's, not, he's not saying, I was really immature once and now I'm a really mature person. He's saying, look, when you're young, b- before, the, before you come to the end of things, you are young, but then you grow and you gain maturity. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And here he's describing right now, we're in this time where these gifts are necessary, but there's a time coming when the perfect will come. And these things that we these childish ways will be put behind us. Verse 12, right now we see in a mirror dimly. And of course you would know this, right? That the mirrors that Paul would have had access to would be nothing like our mirrors today, right? It would have been probably a piece of bronze that was polished, very, very, very polished. And you would get a basic understanding of what your face looked like, right? But it wouldn't be a perfect image. And Paul is saying, look, right now we see in a mirror dimly, but there's coming a day where we'll see him face to face. And, and when that happens, we will know him even as we are fully known by him. The one described in verses four through seven is coming. And when he comes, the things in verses one through three, they're going to, they're going to pass away. We will see him face to face. Faith and hope and love. We have these things now, but the greatest, the greatest of all of these is love. Brothers and sisters, have you found his love? Does your heart rest securely in his love for you? This passage is about you understanding how God has loved you, not primarily about how you're supposed to love other people. It is about that, not primarily, secondarily. It's a great wedding text, secondarily. It is primarily about how you have been loved by God. And some of you struggle to love well because you don't understand how well you've been loved. And you try to gin up more love inside of you for that same three groups of people, right? Your, your parents, your, your, your family, your friends, right? You know, parents, spouse, children. You, you try to be more loving and you look at the person right? And you look at the person and you focus on the person. You think I'm going to be more loving, but that person, the more you focus on them, the more unlovely they seem to you. And it actually gets harder to love them. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to point at anybody in the room, right? <laughs> right. But it's just the reality of how love often works. So, so what if I get my basis and my motivation for loving others from a different source, from a different place? That's exactly what Paul's arguing for here. He's saying, listen, when you understand how you have been loved, now you are free. You're not banging gongs and clanging cymbals to try to earn the love of God. You realize, wait a second, I'm looking at the cross. I see Jesus. He has has loved me and and I am free. And And I can love other people without needing anything in return from them. 
I don't need their approval or their favor or their thank you. I can love them because, because I've been loved by someone when I was very unlovely. How many of you were really lovely when God saved you? He saved you because you were just such a wonderful person and he knew I can't do Christianity without having this person on my team. And they haven't even sinned against me, in fact, but now, so I'm gonna bring them on my side. No, you have sinned against them and sinned against him and sinned against him. You've been very ugly toward him. You have doubted him, even on this side of your conversion, you've doubted him, you've, you've, you've completely ignored his way at times. And, he, and, his, and his heart toward you is a constant ray beam of love. You get his love his unchanging, absolute commitment and affection toward you. God does, he loves those who are his own. If you have turned from your sin and put faith in Christ as your savior, you are now in relationship with him and he loves you. And that, that's what your gong banging is trying to get, but that's not how you get it. You get it because he gives it, because he gives it and he gives it freely to those who will come and put their faith in him. That's how you find your, his love for you. Have, you. have you found his love for you? Does your heart, has your heart been changed? Not just constrained, but has your heart actually been supernaturally changed? A heart transplant, the old heart of stone taken away and a new heart given to you where you know, I'm safe in the love of Christ. How, how do you get there? How do you, how do you actually come to know and experience that love. I'm talking as a Christian now, right? I just explained, if you're an unbeliever, how you come to know Christ as your savior. You repent of your sins and put faith in him and he brings you, he forgives you. His love is for you. What, Christian, how, how do we grow in understanding the love of God for us? We grow in our understanding of the love of God for us by meditating on what his son Christ did for us on the cross. You stand at the foot of the cross and you look at what Christ has done for you. It's all through the scriptures. It's how, it's how we remain aware of the love of God for us. I was a sinner. I deserved separation from God for eternity. I was not lovely. I, I did not merit the salvation of God. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves me and I'm safe in the arms of Jesus and that's what changes a heart. That's how your heart is changed, not just conformed, but begins to change. Even as a Christian, our hearts can be changed by understanding the love that I need only comes from Christ. That's the love that I need. It's nice to have other humans love me. We like it when other humans love me, but did you know that if no other human loved you and all that you had was the love of God for you in Christ Jesus, you have everything you need. Janae read about it this morning. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing can. Friends, do, does your heart rest securely in his love for you? It's his love for you that will motivate your loving others. Understanding the vertical helps you with the horizontal. Understanding the vertical helps you with the horizontal. If I wanna love my family better, I need to spend a lot of time remembering and thinking about and understanding God's love for me. If I want to love my wife better, I need to spend a lot of time looking at Christ and understanding how he has given himself sacrificially for me. If I want to love my, my extended family, my friends, my, my church family, my coworkers, my very unlovely coworkers, my very unlovely family members, my very unlovely, well, God 
in Christ loved you when you were very unlovely. Meditating on that helps me realize I've been loved this way and I can, I can extend this love toward others as well. And it's, lo- it's his love for you that both is the example and the motivation for your loving others. And when your heart rests in his love for you, you're freed up to love others. You don't have to bang gongs and clang cymbals. When you have a heart that's filled with the love of God, you are free and able to love others. You can be patient and kind and not manipulative and not always offended. Instead of needing love from others, you can extend love to others. My main point this morning as I conclude is this, human love must be motivated by divine love. Human love must be motivated by divine love. When we read Hebrews 13, or Hebrews, I don't know where I got Hebrews. 1 Corinthians 13, when we read 1 Corinthians 13, I want it to still be the love chapter. I want you to find it to be the most beautiful chapter you've ever read in the Bible. And it will only be that for us though, as we understand that verses four through seven are describing a person. Paul does have someone in mind and it's not the Corinthian believers. It's not he himself. He is talking about Jesus Christ and he's reminding them of how they've been loved. Don't get things out of order. Don't get all your gifts. Don't be, that's not what is important. Ultimately, what is ultimately important is that we understand Christ's love for us and then we bend that out toward others. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes and I'm gonna visit with you for just a second. The music team can come and get in place and the song that we're going to sing, oh, brothers and sisters, please give careful attention. It's an old song, but a wonderful song where we, we will think about Christ's love for us, how marvelous, how wonderful my song will ever be, how marvelous and how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Vicki chose this song and I just told her this is gonna be a perfect way for us to conclude this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, you, you don't know the love of God for you in a personal relational sense. If that's you this morning, please don't leave without talking with someone and getting that settled. You, you can know God through Jesus Christ. Pastor Matt and I will both be here, but there's plenty of others around uh, the auditorium that would be happy to visit with you about that. Don't just assume that you're a Christian. Don't just assume that you can do it another day. We don't know what the rest of the day holds for us and none of us are promised tomorrow. But we, can be promised, we are promised eternity through God's son, Jesus Christ. If you wanna visit with someone, please do that. The rest of us, here's the, here's the application. Here's the takeaway. Here's the so what. Here's, here's what you're supposed to do this morning. Meditate on the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Ask God to help you believe and feel the truth of being loved by his son, Jesus Christ. Human love must be motivated by divine love. Father, would you please use your word in our lives? Make us loving people, but make us people who are aware of how incredibly, wonderfully, and deeply we've been loved. Jesus, thank you for your love. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing and then Matt will come and close us in prayer.